down. So here we go. July 21st, 2010, lecture discussion number eight on the book of Romans. Number eight, that's mostly for the people who listen by Internet. Uh, As you know, more of them than there are of us by far. So we have to do things to make them feel included since they can outvote us. Uh, In any event, uh, lecture discussion number eight. So if you have missed the first seven, this might seem a little bit difficult for you. It is the book of Romans after all. And if you haven't, then you'll be fine. And even if you have, I'll do my best to kind of catch you up a little bit. So here we are, lecture number seven. Last week we went head first, boom, dived right into Romans chapter two, more specifically Romans two, eleven through twenty-nine. Very, very complicated, difficult passage of scripture, as tough as there is in the New Testament outside of Revelation in the Gospel of John, is Romans two, eleven through twenty-nine. And there we slammed into two terms over and over again. Yes, kids, go downstairs, hurry. Perfect timing for kids. Get out of all the music. Go right downstairs, miss the sermon. So how do we get even with them? We eat all the food. They don't know when we're dismissing. We can pretend that the sermon's still going. You can be eating. It'll work. It's called vengeance. Anyway, we slammed into two repeatedly used terms last week. Law and circumcision. Law and circumcision, I can barely say it, circumcision. And that's every Bible teacher's dread, law and circumcision. It sets off the inner avoidance alarm system in every pastor. A warning, danger, Will Robinson, that dates me, doesn't it? There was graphics for you, huh? Congregation will start scrambling towards exits. Nothing makes people face plant onto the tables. Whap like law and circumcision lectures on it. And, and if you don't believe me, try it out on your friends. Hey, what do you think about the implication of the Abrahamic covenant sign of circumcision? Just hang out a while. Expect blank stares and a whole bunch of huzz and then they come up with sudden contrived excuses to leave. And it happens every time. It's my personal Bible class record, and none of you, all the high school students that I have don't come in the summer. They call me. Katrina called me, said I won't be coming this summer. I'm going to watch my child play American Legion baseball, which I told her was a very good excuse. So those who I taught Bible school in uh, when they were kids, last time I taught Bible school in high school, those people are all 40 now. That's a little scary for you and me. But my personal Bible class record, uh, whenever I've done a lecture on Romans uh, 2, law and circumcision, is about 50%. Meaning that during the lecture, half the class in the room gets up and leaves and wanders around <laughs> And uh, there's cameras in this uh, facility, so I can find out where you went. But lots of people just get up and they leave. And it's kind of interesting to watch them drift in and out and run around and go outside. And we have coffee here. Last week, as you know, it's just where we are and there's nothing I can do about it. And we're going to just plow through it and I'll get you through law and circumcision. Last week, we defined the, the very important terms. So I've got to be careful I don't trip. Uh, with the law, I'm sorry, without the law. Without the law and in the law, those are two are under the law. Those are two very important terms in the book of Romans and most often misdefined. Without the law refers to the Gentiles. It doesn't refer to the unsaved. It doesn't refer to um, pick your particular group. It just means the Gentiles in the law or under the law means the Jews. The Jewish people were given by God special revelation, the Torah. They had, uh, if you will, this privilege. And that's what this is referring to. If you had this privilege, this special revelation, the Torah, the prophets, the sacrificial system, the priesthood, 
the feast days, then you are in the law or under the law. If you didn't have that, if you didn't have that special revelation, you are without the law. So it really is just a delineation, if you will, a distinction between the Jews and the Gentiles. That's all it is. To try to put some doctrine into it is to misunderstand what Paul is saying. Do we have people that like to put doctrine here? All the time. They build huge churches from whence they get lots of money from people who won't study. The Jewish people were given by God, let me repeat it, special revelation. Israel knew who God is. Notice I say is and not was because he's the I am. He's in the present. He's outside of time. He sees all of time as a tabletop, if you will. Israel knew who God is and what he intends. The Gentiles didn't. The Gentiles only had only what God gives everyone, the innate inner understanding, the conscience, the morality. Altruism, if you will, must be explained. There is no explanation for altruism, which is goodness. Where does goodness come from? If we are evolutionary, cease to exist creatures, eventually only the evil would have survived. We know that. So what is your explanation for altruism, goodness, morality? Conscience, if you will, as opposed to consciousness. But the Gentiles, we all have that inside of us, an inner understanding of morality. Therefore, both are without excuse. Some have special revelation. The Jews, they are in the law, under the law. Those without that special privilege have instead have as well God-given understanding of who he is. And that's all Romans 2 is saying. Not all, that's a lot. But it has no doctrinal interpretation that is accurate. And God will judge each group. He holds each group accountable. God has no partiality. And it's very important, however, to understand the consequences, this intertwining, if you will, between the Jew who is in the law and the Gentile uh, who is without the law. Because they have a special relationship. I like to call it push-pull. When I taught baseball, I always used to, in order to hit a curveball, an off-speed pitch, you've got to pick up the front foot. It's just what you got to do. It's very difficult to just cock and swing without moving that front foot on an off-speed pitch. So you teach to pick up that front foot. You know, if you go too high, then you're playing softball. But if you're, you go in just the right spot, and you talk about how the elbow and the knee are tied together. When the leg comes up, the elbow moves back. There's like there's a string attached to it. There's like there's a stick there. In fact, when I was playing uh, uh, at a very higher level than I certainly am now, um, I had a coach that would tie us all together. He would truss us up with these different devices. So I had a stick between my knee and my elbow. And if I lifted the elbow up, it pushed the leg. Or, I mean, I'm sorry, I pushed the knee up. It moved the arms back. So I had this timing mechanism going on. And he hit the off-speed pitch for the outside breaking ball. That's what the point of it was. Well, that is exactly the Jew and the Gentile. If one moves this way, the other one goes towards. They, they have this relationship that exists. There's consequences to each if each does not respond. If the Gentiles don't respond to their inner voice, if you will, the morality that God puts inside of them, then what happens? They begin to move away. Well, what is the Jews supposed to do? He has all this special revelation. He's supposed to go to them. If the Jew begins to move away from God, what happens to the Gentile? He moves towards the Jew, not to, to be closer to the Jew for some kind of friendship, but why does he move towards them? You have uh, Nebuchadnezzar, 586 B.C., right? Sennacherib, 732. Captivity of uh, what's essentially now Kurdistan, the Jewish people that have been moved into Kurdistan. Been there, what, 2,700 years? Now they're free. That's a big deal, as you've heard me say many times. You live in a time, for those of you who are visitors here, you live in a time where the first time in 2,700 years, Kurdistan is free. The Assyrians are free. From the Babylonians, the Chaldeans, 2,500 years effectively. And that is where the northern tribes of Israel were taken. They were captured by the Assyrians and put into captivity. And they've been there 2,500 years or better. And now they're free. And that's an Isaiah 19 prophecy. It has happened in your lifetime. Do not disregard that. 
that's an event that happened when? What? 2001? The Assyrian Empire is back. Isaiah 19 said it would come back and would fight on the side of Israel against the forces that attack Israel. So that's an extraordinary thing. Happened, even if you're 15 years old, it happened in your life. Don't disregard it. Those of you who were born prior to 1948 know that the Jews came back as a nation, 1948-1949. That's extraordinary. Well, the Assyrian Empire is back. That is also extraordinary. Equal to the Jews? Maybe not, but certainly right there. Okay, where was I? Consequences to the Jewish people if they reject the revelatory truth and are disobedient. In other words, they have no thankfulness for, for, for that great revelation that they were given, that salvation that they were given. All they all were supposed to do. We've got two things we're supposed to do. Be thankful we're saved and glorify God for saving us. That's about it. You do those two things, you're doing good. But the Jews came to a place where they had no thankfulness and they gave no glory to God. And therefore, they, they caused consequences to the Gentile. And the Gentile... If, he, if they do not respond to their God-given conscience and wisdom that witnesses to each one of us uh, of God, then they were to do what? They're supposed to seek. They're supposed to find the Jews, really. Find the ones who have the truth. Find the, the, find the ones who are thankful. Find the ones who have glory, are given glory, and seek them out. But they, if they don't do that, then there's consequences to them. See, the Jews were supposed to seek out the Gentiles and teach them joyfully and with gladness. One of the things that Deuteronomy 28:45 through 49 says they were supposed to do. And if they don't do it, then curses are coming to them. And the Jews came to a place where they didn't do that at all. They both sides refused, if you will. Both sides hated each other. The Gentiles didn't seek out the truth and the Jews had no intention of going to find them. So here's this push-pull relationship starts again. The Jews hated the pagan Gentiles. They mocked them as stupid. And they took great pleasure in their damnation. Who's causing their damnation? Who's responsible for their damnation is a better way of putting it. Yes, you can say individually. But the Jews were told, thankful, be thankful, glorify me, and go in and teach the Gentiles about me. They refused. In fact, they were, they were just thrilled that it wasn't happening. Look at the dumb pagan Gentiles. Boy, are they stupid, and they're all condemned. So what happens to the Gentiles? What do they become? They become a condemned, disregarding their own inner conscience. And they become hateful of who? The Jews. And what do they do? They attack and they kill them. Why not? Why shouldn't they? See, not witnessing to the Gentile nations results in the Gentile nations seeing no distinction. You're supposed to have the truth of God. You don't act like it. You don't bring it to anybody. You, in fact, do the opposite. You're wishing for us to die, to be condemned. So you're no different than us. You're just another evil, corrupt people. And so we're more powerful than you are on this earth, for sure, if God doesn't defend you. And so we're going to catch you and slaughter you. That's exactly what happens. If the Jews don't go towards the Gentiles, the Gentiles go towards the Jews. And they go to kill them. And that's what the book of Romans is talking about. Chapter 2. Chapter 1 and chapter 2. The Jews would become a sign and a wonder to the Gentiles. That's not a good thing. God would disperse them. You won't go willingly. I'll throw you out there then. I'll let the Gentiles come and capture you. I'll disperse you that way. At least you'll go. How did it work out for Nebuchadnezzar? He got saved. How, how did it turn out for the Babylonian court? They all got saved. They all showed up when, the, when Christ was born. They're the only ones that knew who he was. The Jews had no idea. A couple of shepherds, three, four thousand members of the court of Daniel, the descendants of those who Daniel saved, their forefathers. Nebuchadnezzar was going to kill them because he knew they were phonies. Daniel made them the real thing. And those men... Those Babylonian Gentiles show up at the birth of Christ because they know who he is. They know he's God. Daniel, by going into Babylon, by the Jews going into Kurdistan or Syria, Jonah going, we have saved Assyrians and saved Babylonians. And they show up at the end of the age. 
Here we go again, huh? So there's either way, the Jews are a sign and a wonder. They either are the teacher of truth and they're a sign and a wonder that way, or they're a symbol of disobedience, in which case they become a sign and a wonder because God uh, disciplines them. They're a warning. There's no escaping the sign and wonder business if you have special revelation. Now make the application to yourself. If you have special revelation, you're going to be a sign or a wonder. Go ahead. Going to happen. You can either be a willing sign or wonder, or you can be an unwilling sign or wonder. There he goes. He is a sign and a wonder of what not to do. I'm an expert on lots of things not to do. Most of you are, I look around, I see many people who are aware of my expertise in certain matters. Construction and real estate. I am a sign and a wonder to this city. And that's not a good thing. <laughs> yeah, okay. There's no escaping the responsibility to be a lesson. You're going to be a teacher willingly or unwillingly. So be prepared for that. Same for us. Same for Israel. The church has a special revelation and understanding. We have the Word of God. If we don't act on it, if we, our job is to be thankful. How do you be thankful? And to give glory to God. How do you give glory to God? How do you be thankful? What's one thing you can do that is showing your thankfulness that you, you putrid piece of junk, how do I know that you are a putrid piece of junk? Because I am a putrid piece of junk and I have a mirror. I know what I am and I know what you are. How can we be thankful? What's one way we can show we're thankful? Go find somebody and tell them the truth. Anybody. Start with your kids. Start with your family. That's easy. They usually tolerate us. Not always. Work to your neighbors. Find your friends. That shows that you are thankful. That shows that you are giving glory to God. If you're not going to do that willingly, oh, I don't want to offend anybody. If you're not going to do it willingly, what's going to happen? You're going to do it unwillingly as a sign and a wonder, as a lesson for someone who has special revelation and is not thankful and does not glorify God. Okay, that sums up last Sunday. There we go. I, again, either way, you're going to be used by God. I suggest that... Uh, you choose the willing method, but you don't have to. The unwilling method is very effective. It works on everybody that tries it. So if that's you, you'll go down that little steep embankment and teacuddle yourself all the way down to the bottom and you'll be there, no arms and legs, and you'll look up, you'll see a phone booth, and whose number is there? Mine. How did it get there? I just raced and beat you. I know what's there. Okay, now back to the text. That sums up last Sunday, as I said. We're going to reread where we're headed today. Everybody's got to get prepared for this, so this is that place. You know, Dave made you stand up just before Days of Elijah. What a great idea. Because here's, here's where we need coffee and brief, brief calisthenics, push-up position, drool buckets and bibs and machetes, because we're going into the tall grass. So here we go. Romans 2, 17 through 29. And if you think you can get it without reading it along with me, you are mistaken. It is too difficult. So if you can get a Bible, this is a chance to steal some food, get a cup of coffee, wander out into the parking lot. No one will notice you until you clear the door. Then we all point and look at you. There's Bibles in front of Eric. Eric, raise your hand. Lindsay and Eric have Bibles. Nope, all Bible's gone. Wow. Oh, Jack's got some. If you need one, it is your textbook. Okay, here we go. Romans 2, 17. Indeed, you are called a Jew. So, obviously, Paul is now speaking to the Jews. And rest on the law. And make your boast in God. And know His will. And approve the things that are excellent. Being instructed out of the law. And are confident that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, an instructor to the foolish, a teacher of babies, having the form of knowledge and truth in the law. 
So they have the special revelation. They're Jews. You, therefore, who teach another, do you not teach yourself? You who preach that a man should not steal, do you steal? That, by the way, is a rhetorical question. That implies that they're thieves. That implies that they're teaching people, but they're not teaching themselves, which means they don't know anything in the sense that they haven't applied it to themselves. You who preach that a man should not steal, do you steal? You who say, do not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? Again, that implies our yes response. You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? Again, a yes response. So how are the Jews doing right here? They're thieves, they're adulterers, and they're robbing temples. Obvious questions abound there, by the way. We'll get to them in a minute. You who make your boast in the law, do you dishonor God through breaking the law? That, again, implies a yes. And then Isaiah is quoted here. 52.5 For the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. You have special revelation, no one would know it. And because you have special revelation and no one knows it, you are blaspheming. You're doing the opposite of being thankful and glorifying God. You're blaspheming God among the Gentiles. Now, here comes. 25. For circumcision is indeed profitable if you keep the law, but if you are breaking, uh, I'm sorry, but if you are a breaker of the law, your circumcision has become uncircumcision. What did we learn there? Circumcision can become uncircumcision. Okay? What is that? Some kind of medical procedure? How does that work? Therefore, if an uncircumcised man keeps the righteous requirements of the law, will not his uncircumcision be counted as circumcision? And will not the physically uncircumcised, if he fulfills the law, judge you who even with your written code and circumcision are a transgressor of the law? Again, it implies yes. For he is not a Jew who is one outwardly, nor is circumcision that which is outward in the flesh. But he is a Jew who is one inwardly, and circumcision is that of the heart in the spirit, not in the letter, whose praise is not from men, but from God. Okay, note a few things. Starts out, if you are a Jew, if you are named a Jew is what it literally is. It begins that way. If you are named a Jew, you're, if you're a math teacher, you know immediately if I have an if, then what have I got coming right behind it? I have a then. If then. It's in a conditional form. It's a first class conditional sentence, which is assumed to be true. If you are a Jew, we assume that's true. He's writing to Jews. They're Jews. If they are a Jew, then the rest of it is true. The conditional is true. If you are named a Jew, then certain things are, are true about you. How, how, how did it work out for him? Paul lists these eight things the Jews are. If you're a Jew, then this is you. They rely on the law. Obvious question. What are they relying on the law for? You know. Yeah, I think it's going to save them. Going to save them? Ain't going to save them. Big problems. They boast and they brag about their special status. If you're a Jew, you're relying on the law. You're in heap em, big wampum trouble right off the bat. And you're bragging about how cool you are. If you want to be in charge of the church... And lots of people brag about being in charge of the church. Excuse me, I have to have medicine. A lot of people want to be in charge. One of the worst things that ever happens in churches is stand back. Here they come, going to run things for you. And when those people show up, what you have to do is you have to usher them to the secret room. You bring them through the front door and you have the secret room right here. You've got to take the exit sign down and put secret room there. And you just usher them right on through. The last thing you want is people who want to be in charge of your church. They're going to kill you. People who brag about themselves in churches, who brag about their special status. If, if you're a Jew, he's saying, you boast, you brag about, you, you boast in God. And you, but you know God's plans and you know His intentions. And the Jews did. They knew what God wanted. They knew who He was and they knew what He intended to do. They also conceded, number four, for those of you who are counting on the internet. 
Number one, they rely on the law. Number two, they boast and brag about their special status. Number three, they know God's plan and His intentions. Number four, they concede, if you will. They know that God's plan is superior. They know it is. It's no contest. That is the superior plan. There is no other plan. That one is overwhelming. We know that. If you know that that is the, if you know this is truth, and you know it's the only truth, and you know it is God's truth, and you know it is, it's not just superior, there's nothing even on the page but it, you'd think that would affect you. They know it's true. They know His things are excellent. They know that He is the only God. They know He's the Creator of all things. They've examined the evidence and declared God's plan as the truth. Truth, it's a definitive article, meaning there is no other truth but this one. They know that. If you're a Jew, you know that. If then. And the reason they're able to figure all that out is because God taught it to them. They're being instructed in it. They have it. They're being instructed by the Torah, by the Old Testament. And the Jews then were convinced and they were confident that they were a guide for the blind, a light to those in darkness, an instructor to the foolish, and a teacher of babies. That's what they thought they were. They were convinced of this because they possessed the truth, the knowledge. No other truth, no other knowledge, but this one. And they had it. All of those, those first seven are true because these are Jews. If you're a Jew, then those first seven things, or those seven things in Romans, apply to you. Conditional statement. If the, if the first is true, then the conditions are true. Okay, so now we're at number eight, because number eight is also true. They think all those things, and they know all those things, but here's number eight. They're hypocrites. They steal. They commit adultery. They rob temples. They dishonor God. Because of them, God's name is blasphemed among the, among the Gentiles. So here's the obvious questions. They're thieves. They're stealing stuff. What are they stealing? Why are they stealing it? It says right there. You say, I'm sorry, you therefore who teach another, do you not teach yourself? You who preach that a man should not steal, do you steal? What are they stealing? They obviously are stealing. What? They're committing adultery. What does God mean when he says committing adultery? Yeah, adultery is an, the word is abomination. It's the same word. And it is referring to almost every single time, not uh, infidelity, if you will, with respect physically man to a woman or whatever the case may be in our current situation in this country. But what it really means is adultery with respect to worshiping God. They had left God behind and were now in an adulterous worship relationship with who? Who did they replace him with? And why did they, why did they rob the temples? What, what was in it for them? They're, they're robbing temples. Whose temples are they? What are they taking out of them? And by the way, Deuteronomy specifically says, don't rob temples. Don't be robbing temples. They're robbing temples. Why? Well, we can answer all those questions, and we're going to, by dealing with what? What comes first? What answers all those questions? That's right. Circumcision. Yay! The crowd goes wild. We're going to talk about circumcision. Everybody's favorite. Because you all know that if you're going to understand circumcision, where you got to go? You got to go back. Yeah, you got to go back. Most people go to Moses and Zipporah in Exodus 4. Did I read that last week? You, I don't remember if I read it or not. Okay, let's read it. I, I know I referenced it. So we got to read it. As I wrote this, I was wondering whether or not I had actually... I don't listen to myself. I don't get on the Internet and listen to see if I'm any good. I'm very well aware how that discourages me. So I don't. Never have. Maybe briefly, sometimes I listen to myself and I go, Gosh, I hope he gets it right. Come on. I root for me. Go, Steve. Get it right. Yay, he lucked into something. I don't want to know if I don't. So I don't listen. 
So here we go. Back we must go to understand circumcision. You've got to know about Moses and Zipporah. It's a very important, complex passage, difficult to interpret it correctly. The key to understanding is the very last thing that Zipporah says. You have to look at it typologically. It's all typological. Every bit of it. God is acting something out, if you will. Moses is in a role. Christ is in a role. And Zipporah is in a role. And you must assign the correct role to each one of them in order to understand the lesson that's being taught. See, Moses is about to go into Egypt. That's why I start in verse 21. And the Lord said to Moses, when you go back to Egypt, see that you do all those wonders before Pharaoh, which I have put in your hand, but I will harden his heart. Is it fair that God hardens Pharaoh's heart? That is fair. Is it fair? Is it good? God is good. Isn't he good? He's always good. He can't help but be good. Is it good to harden Pharaoh's heart? The answer is yes. So the correct question is, is why? The illiterate question would be no. The disrespectful question would be no. And we've talked about God hardening hearts all the time. How does God harden hearts? I'll be in the role of God. Please do not in any way think that's possible. But I will just for your sake do a quick representation. God is going to harden your heart. How's he going to do it? This is what he's going to do. He's going to step backwards. Now why is he stepping backwards? Because what did Pharaoh do six times? Pharaoh stepped backwards. That is a solemn, ominous thing. You're going to step back from God. He could step back from you. That is not good news. If you thought God is reaching into his heart and going, well, you're not thinking it through correctly. You have to understand. You have to have confidence in God first. He is good. What he is saying is, is that he will walk away, back away from a man who is intent on backing away from him. Remember, the Pharaoh is typologically uh, referencing who in the book of Exodus? Who is his, who is his if you will, his uh, connection to the New Testament? It's the Antichrist. Good for you. Okay. Then you shall say to Pharaoh, thus says the Lord, Israel is my son, my firstborn. So I say to you, let my son go that he may serve me. But if you refuse to let him go, indeed, I will kill your son, your firstborn. That, of course, is the Passover, a very important piece of scripture to understand. Christ, of course, is the Passover. And you begin to see the typology coming into play. And it came to pass. So Moses is going, right? He's going. He's got his message and he's going. And it came to pass on the way at the encampment. So they're now camping that the Lord met Moses, if you will. I'm just putting Moses instead of him and sought to kill Moses. Now, does that make any sense? He just got instructions to go to Pharaoh. He got instructions to get the people of Israel out. We have the beginning of the Passover prophecy there. And now he's trying to kill him. Makes no sense, does it? And you should be very excited that it makes no sense. Because whenever you see something that makes no sense, what do you know? Some great treasure is hidden here. Something really incredible is hidden here. What is it almost always? Why does God intervene? He always intervenes for the same reasons. If he's going to kill somebody, why? Some great doctrinal truth is being violated. And what is it? What great doctrinal truth results in death? Whenever you see a stoning death in the Old Testament, what great doctrinal truth has been is being attacked? Whenever you see an entire group of people swallowed up by the earth, what great doctrinal truth is being attacked? God must interfere. Whenever you see somebody put the wrong incense on an altar and they get taken first day on the job in their new bright uniforms and their little hats, poof, they're dead. First day doesn't seem fair. Hardly even got their time cards figured out. Didn't even get their 1099. And they're dead. When that happens, there's a great doctrinal truth here. A doctrinal truth that does what? Has something to do with what? Salvation. Which means it has something to do with who? Jesus Christ is being, uh, being attacked. The doctrine of Christ. So, somehow Moses is attacking the doctrine of Christ. 
And this what's called a dramatic theodicy is occurring. Jesus Christ meets Moses. That's the physical manifestation of God. Whenever there's a physical manifestation of God, whenever the invisible God is made visible, that is Christ. This is called a Christology, a Christophany or a theophany, but it is Christ that is here. So Christ met Moses and sought to kill him. Why would Christ seek Moses out and seek to kill him at an encampment after he just told him what to do? Then Zipporah, oh, by the way, Zipporah obviously knew what to do. She knew why Moses was going to be killed. She had it figured out very quickly. She takes a sharp stone and cuts off the foreskins of her sons and casts it at the feet of Moses and said, Surely you are a husband of blood to me. So Christ let Moses go. It was all about what? Circumcision. Now, I've done this lecture. How many of you have been here for me doing the Moses Sephora lecture? Raise your hands. Higher. You have visitors. They're going to come to you and say, teach this to me. Okay, I've done it many, many times. And I always make the same comment. How old are these kids? These are older kids. And mom says, I'm going to get a sharp rock. Ooh, and I'm in a hurry. And there's my sharp rock, and we're doing circumcision. You first. There's a couple of them here. Everybody knew, everybody knew why Christ was here. It's because the sons had not been circumcised. So what's the obvious question? If you knew that this is not good, that God is not going to let you go into Egypt unless your sons are circumcised, if you knew that that fast and you knew it beforehand, and if you knew it beforehand, what's the obvious question? How come you didn't do it? Then she said, you are a husband of blood because of the circumcision. So that's a very important part of this, the husband of blood. Who is, I said it last week as well, who is the husband of blood in Scripture? That is Jesus Christ. So Moses is obviously in a Christ role here. Moses is the husband of blood. Now, who is, who today calls Jesus Christ? The husband of blood. They don't call him the husband yet, but they will. They call him the man of blood. In fact, we get it all the time. Your religion, they tell me, when they come to my door, which they don't come to me, my door very much anymore. And they don't call like they used to. That's really a shame. Lori will tell you, I answer that phone when I see it's an out-of-state number because those are my favorite. I particularly like those. But they aren't calling me anymore as like they used to. And they have the computer thing. And as soon as I say, hello, they hang up. That's really a shame. Sometimes I get to ask my questions. You know how to handle telemarketers, right? You just start asking them questions. As many questions as you can think of. I always start with, uh, where are you calling me from? Because I like to know about the weather. Everybody wants to tell you what their weather is like, and they always want to know what my weather is like. So we start talking about the weather. So how's the weather in Baltimore? Well, it's really hot. What's well, really cold here? Whenever it's really hot on the East Coast, it's really cold in Alaska. Did you ever notice that? No. Well, that's the case. So what do you think the Ravens are going to do this year? So I got them 15 minutes before they even begin to ask me what they wanted to sell me. And I am in total control, and it is lots of fun, and the kids and the dogs, and there's no kids in that. Yes, there are. The dogs and Lori leave the room in disgust while I go about this, because it's <laughs> one of the things that I do that I really like. Well, sometimes it's theological. Many times they're trying to sell me things because they want to, get, they want to talk to the pastor. So I say, okay, just a minute, I'll go get him. I hang up. I just set it down, and I come back. Hello? Hi, pastor? Yes. How are you? Sometimes I want to talk to the youth pastor. I'll, I'll go get him. <laughs> anyway. Who, I don't know how I got onto that, but I did. It's okay, they'll edit it out for the internet people. Um, who says about Christ, he is the man of blood? Who says to us? Your religion is about blood. They say it all the time. Okay? 
Different groups will always say to me on these phone calls or when they knock on my door, oh, you're a Christian. Your religion is about blood. Are they right? Yes, they're right. Yeah, absolutely. Yay, you got that right. Who is the man of blood? Jesus Christ is the man of blood. Here he's called the husband of blood. So this must be the wife of the husband of blood. Who is the wife of the husband of blood? The Jews. Israel. They are called the wife of YHBH. We, the church, are the bride of Christ. They are the wife of God, if you will. Their their wedding ceremony was at Mount Sinai. Our wedding ceremony was on the exact same day, the, the feast day of Shavuot. Both ceremonies were identical. People don't understand that. We mistakenly call ours Pentecost when we should call it Shavuot. We were married or betrothed. The bride of Christ was betrothed on the exact same feast day as the marriage ceremony of the of Israel to God. Okay. But we also, once we got that one, so you know that's going to explain circumcision. Now you know that circumcision has something to do with the blood of Christ. I always say many times you can substitute the blood of Christ or you can substitute Christ crucified every place you find circumcision. Christ cut off, if you will. Because I have the cutting off and I have the blood. Okay, but there's other passages that we've got to collect as well. Hopefully we'll get to read one of them if I hurry. In order to properly understand what Romans, in order to get that Roman circumcision thing worked out, you're going to have to run around the Old Testament and find out what circumcision means. So, and not the least of these is, if you, in fact it goes before, it's in Genesis. Where do I go to learn about circumcision if I don't stop at Moses and Zipporah and I keep going back? Where do I go? I'll give you a hint. Genesis, I'll give you another hint. Thirty-four, Genesis thirty-four, good, out of the back row. And yes, more food has arrived for the buffet table. We all sing the "I Love You, Christopher" song. Last week it was John. Okay, Genesis thirty-four. What is Genesis thirty-four? It's the Dinah incident, which is where circumcision. I already told you, circumcision has something to do with the blood or the crucifixion of Christ, right? So now I have the Dinah incident, which is where the crucifixion of Christ is used to do something. What is it used to do? So it would do. It's the Dinah incident. You all learned it in Sunday school. What did they use circumcision for in the Dinah incident? That is correct. They used it to kill people, kill Gentiles. Jews kill Gentiles with the blood of Christ. How's that sound? That's a big mess, right? The Dinah incident is where circumcision is used by the nation of Israel. Uh, Granted, it was the brothers or the uh, sons of Jacob. It's the first 12 brothers, right? By the nation of Israel to kill Gibeonites on the third day. They used circumcision to kill Gibeonites on the third day. That sends us, uh, that sends us, by the way, to the famine of 2 Samuel 21. Why does it do that? I gotta go back and look at what happened in the Dinah incident, then where we're killing people using circumcision. And then I gotta go to 2 Samuel 21 because I got a a three-year famine there where Jews are dying in a three-year famine because Saul did something. King Saul, what did he do? He killed Gibeonites again. Why does everyone want to kill Gibeonites, especially Jews? Why do Jews want to kill Gibeonites? Is God happy about that? He is not happy. You want to really make God angry, kill a Gibeonite. So what do you got to find out? Kill a Gibeonite using circumcision. That really gets you in trouble. Second Samuel 21 is where, where David avenges the Gibeonites. He goes to the Gibeonites who were slaughtered by Saul and he says, what do you want? And the Gibeonites say to him, we want seven men to hang. Seven descendants of Saul. Saul's already dead. Jonathan is dead. And they hang these seven men. Why do they hang these seven sons of Saul, if you will? What, what do they do? Why did they want those seven? They wanted those seven because those seven did something. What did they do? They killed Gibeonites. And this is where Rizpah fights off the birds. What's the typology there? These men are hanging. And, of course, whenever someone is crucified hanging from a tree, what's the first thing the birds do? They come down and do what? They eat the eyes, right? So this woman, 
she, some of the five of those sons were hers. The other two were Micah's, Michael's, I'm sorry. And she runs out there and she fights these birds off and these animals off so they do not eat the bodies of her five sons or the other two as well. And she's honored by God for that. So what's the typology? See, again, we're learning about what? Why do we hang seven guys? Why do we have a famine? Because of circumcision. You don't use circumcision to kill people. Killing Gibeonites is not something that God will stand. He avenges the Gibeonites. So you have to understand how circumcision fits in there. It is important to know why. Genesis 34 teaches us why, coupled with Joshua 9. You have to understand Hivites, by the way, if you do that on your own. Study the Hivites. You'll find out a Hivite is a Gibeonite. Okay? Using circumcision as an instrument of death will cause God to intervene. Because circumcision has a relationship, it has a symbolism, it has a typology, if you will, of Christ crucified or the blood of Christ. It teaches us why. See, you've got to have, you got to understand the symbol, because the symbol teaches us why it's the sign of the Abrahamic covenant. What's What's the Abrahamic covenant? The sign of the Abrahamic covenant is circumcision. What is the Abrahamic covenant? It's the covenant given to Abraham by God. It's the covenant of what? Promise and grace. It's promise and grace. The sign of grace, the sign of promise, the son of promise, the sign of grace is circumcision. It's the sign that is the opposite of law and works. Okay, so you go, you got to go Moses. First, you started dying and then you go to Moses and Zipporah, right? And now where else do we go in the Old Testament? David and Goliath. Why do I go to David and Goliath? Yes, it's true. David cuts the head off of Goliath. Why does he cut the head off of Goliath? Because he's going to take the head back to Golgotha. Golgotha means the place where David buried Goliath's head. Golgotha. That's what it means, shortened to Golgotha. So David takes his head there. Why does he take his head there? Because he tells you why. Why does he cut his head off? Because he is an uncircumcised Palestinian. Okay, let me say it in the ancient words. He is an uncircumcised circumcised Philistine. 1 Samuel 17, 36. Philistine and Palestinian are the same word. Goliath the giant, hater and cursor of God. Goliath the champion of the Philistines, killed by the shepherd king of Israel. This unbeatable man, this incredibly super-powered human being, killed by the shepherd king. There's your Revelation 19 connection, your portrait of Christ, right? And finally, in order to solve the full meaning of circumcision, we must note the separation of the flesh element that's there, the uncleanness that's there. The uncircumcised are considered unclean, which raises up immediately Romans 5.12, which is convenient because that's what we're studying, the book of Romans, right? Yes, I'm wandering around in a circle and you're all lost. It is what I do. Let me read Romans 5.12. Therefore, just as through one man sin entered the world and death through sin and thus death spread to all men. So there you go. Circumcision. Do you get it? Adam, the first federal head of humanity, will be brought into the question because of the transference of the sin nature. And that leads us back to Romans 2, 28 and 29, circumcision of the heart, circumcision of the mind, if you will, spiritual circumcision. You got to know that there is a physical circumcision and a spiritual circumcision. What's the difference? Just as there are spiritual children, descendants of Abraham, and there are physical descendants of Abraham. You don't necessarily need to be a physical descendant or physically circumcised. You need to be spiritually circumcised and a spiritual descendant. Spiritual descendant through the Abrahamic covenant means grace and promise. Spiritual circumcision means blood of Christ. See how it all works? It's not enough to be physically circumcised or a physical descendant of Abraham. Some say it is. Some say that if you're a physical descendant of Abraham, that you will be saved. The Bible says no. Physical descendant salvation of Abraham is called dual covenantism. Very common today. That's why they don't witness to the Jews. Isn't it interesting now? The Jews didn't witness to the Gentiles, and now the Gentiles aren't witnessing to the Jews. 
How screwed up can we get? Paul, the Holy Spirit through Paul, makes it clear that a circumcised heart is a spiritual descendancy of Abraham. Okay. I got three minutes. What am I going to do in three minutes? Screaming through today. I have a note here. Read the Dinah incident. Genesis 34. Should do it. Dinah in three minutes. Ready. Genesis 34. Now, Dinah, the daughter of Leah, whom she had born to Jacob, went out to see the daughters of the land. And when Shechem, the son of Hamar, the Hivite, Hivites, Joshua 9, are Gibeonites. By the way, what did the Gibeonites do in Joshua 9? Israel was coming back into the land, right? And they were going to kill everybody in the land. And the Gibeonites said, we don't want to die. And we've messed with these people before. They got us all circumcised and killed everybody. So we're not going to deal with this. We're going to fake it. We're going to tell them that we, we don't live here. And we're going to sucker these dummies into giving us a covenant of grace. They're going to give us protection. We're going to show up. We're going to have ratty little clothes on and old bread. And they're falling for it because these are really dumb people. We've learned that in our ancient history. Does it work? The Jews would, oh, yeah, yeah, sure, we'll give you a treaty. Thank you. Then they find out they give you knights of the Hivites, and the Hivites are living there. And they're going to kill them. And they go, oh, no, no, we got the paper here in here. Signed by Yeshua. Joshua, Yeshua, Jesus, same name. I got a piece of paper signed by Jesus that says, you can't kill me. How good is that piece of paper? Pretty darn strong, baby. That's what's going on. They fooled them. Absolutely devious, sneaky, tricky guys. Is that fair? Absolutely it's fair, because they got fooled by circumcision and the whole town wiped out. These are the guys that were out with the sheep or something that still lived. The rest of them are dead. Fool me once, right? But now they are protected by God. They have a document signed by the blood of Christ in their hands. You don't kill them. The last thing you do is kill somebody if you're a Jew that has that signed document. Okay? That's probably where I'll stop. I wasted my three minutes. Somehow the phone rang. Musicians, come forward and let's shut her down here. Get to that buffet. So what's the last song, Nicole? Where's Amanda? We lost Amanda again. You are responsible to get Amanda this time.